Good evening, everybody. As you guys know, we've been looking at um, going through a series on the solas of the Reformation in celebration of the uh, Protestant Reformation. And tonight we get an opportunity to think about, just for a little while, shorter message, sola fide, which means by faith alone. And uh, if you understand and you've been listening to the messages or studying up, maybe in the past or currently, on the context of the Protestant Reformation, then you understand that the Roman Catholic Church did teach that salvation uh, or that faith was necessary for salvation. Even today, they wouldn't deny that. In fact, it was the initial step of justification. But then, essentially, one needed to build on that initial faith by doing works of merit, um, adhering to church tradition, practicing the sacraments, and so forth and so forth. We've talked about some of those things in the last few messages that we've done. Um, It was actually possible really within the Christian, uh, within the Catholic faith, to have faith and yet not be in a state of justification. In essence, it was difficult to really have any sense of assurance or security in your salvation when you think about things that way. By contrast, the reason why this is such such an important thing for the Reformers and for others prior to the Reformation and after the Reformation was because they said that upon exercising saving faith, according to the Bible... Someone is justified before God at that moment, whenever that moment is. And only God knows, for the most part, what that moment is, right? When somebody um, uh, uh, is given the gift of faith. The Reformers looked at a passage like Romans chapter 5, verse 1, that says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And they look at texts like Romans chapter 5, verse 1, and they said right there, as soon as somebody is uh, expresses faith, genuine faith from the heart, then somebody is justified, stands righteous before God. There's a righteous standing given to that person. Paul's whole argument, in fact, leading to Romans chapter 5, verse 1, where he says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, is that everybody is a sinner, everybody falls short of the glory of God, everybody is guilty, and therefore what we need is a something outside of ourselves, a righteousness outside of ourselves. Luther called it an alien righteousness, meaning a foreign righteousness. And this whole point leading to Romans chapter 5, verse 1, is that God has provided that righteousness in Jesus Christ our Savior. And that righteous uh, standing is given to us and applied to us by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. So that as Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, Therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, the Roman Catholics said this, And essentially, you understand what you're saying, right? If you're telling people that all is required for salvation is faith alone, that there isn't anything necessary after that, then this is going to suggest to people, and I think this is a legitimate concern, right? Roman Catholicism past and present, that people who hear that then might live however they want. Now that their salvation is secure and they're saved, then the way that they live doesn't really matter. And the Reformers, and of course the Bible says otherwise, right? No, 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 no. Saving grace is a sanctifying grace, as Pastor Carnes even saw last Sunday morning. The grace that saves is the grace that teaches us, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, it instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, right? 
and teaches us or trains us to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So the reformer said, no, if somebody has faith, then this faith will inevitably lead to obedience in the Christian life. And so you can see the legitimate concern and yet the the desire to return to what the Scripture said concerning the doctrine of justification, how we might be made right before a holy God. And the Reformers kept pointing to Scripture and saying it's by faith alone, not on the basis of anything that we can do. And works are the fruit of our justified status, right? The work of the Spirit working in and through us to bring about obedience. Well, I'm sure you can understand that the issue of the nature of faith was so important then, and it's important to us today, right? It's important for us today. So I think we need to spend some time looking at what this issue of faith alone means, not just because it was a key issue then, but because think about our culture even today, how ambiguous or nebulous a concept faith is. People throw things out like, you need to have faith. Be a person of faith. And we might ask, faith in what, right? Well, faith in what? And even in the church, we might say things, well, you just need to believe in yourself. I've heard people in the church say things like that. You just need to believe in yourself. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Faith has become such an ambiguous or nebulous concept, and you think about it. According to Scripture, to be a Christian, to be a Christian, one must have saving faith or be given saving faith. Saving faith is, is, faith is crucial not only to being a Christian or becoming a Christian, but it's essential for living the Christian life. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says this, For without faith it is impossible to please God. If that's the case, beloved, then we need to look and think about what faith is not, right? And what faith is. And that's kind of how I want us to, what I want us to focus our attention upon tonight. What is faith not? And then we want to look briefly at what faith is. Okay? For some of us who are here tonight, you need to understand what saving faith is because this is a matter of your eternal well-being. You need to think about this tonight. Maybe you have not given your life to Christ. Or maybe you're deceived currently into thinking that, that something that you bring to the table is what saves you. Something that you've done, that there is some inherent goodness in you that saves you. So we need to think about what is faith, really? And for others of us who are Christians, we need to understand faith so that we might grow in our faith. For so oftentimes, if you're like me, I deceive myself into thinking without even uh, being conscious of this. I become self-righteous in action, thinking that it's, it's faith in itself that keeps me in favor with God. That I was saved by faith, but I keep uh, in favor with God by my faith. And so we need to clarify uh, and get into a right understanding of what faith is. Okay, so let's look at what faith is not first and foremost. Okay, and I'm going to go through these fairly quickly for the sake of time. Okay, first of all, faith is not mere intellectual or head knowledge. And, I, and that word mere is very important, okay? It's not just head or intellectual knowledge. It's not a simple agreement or affirmation of a, of a set of facts that you've been taught during your lifetime, okay? James chapter 2 verse 19 says that even the demons believe that God is one and they shudder. Listen, Satan and demons are theological gurus, if you will. Satan and demons would score 100 on their theological exams. 
They know about the existence of God and they know about the attributes of God. But the problem is, is that they don't have saving faith. They don't turn from their rebellion against God. They oppose God no matter what. And so we should not reduce faith to just head knowledge. There are many of you here tonight who have a lot of Bible knowledge. You know a lot of facts. You've, maybe you've been through Awana. Maybe you've even been a leader in Awana. Maybe you've gone through Sunday school and you've learned a lot of, a lot of stories from the Bible. And you've read, or maybe you've read a lot of books, theology books on God and all of that. But there is no relationship with God. No relationship with God. That truth, as we're going to talk about, hasn't touched your heart and moved your affections into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ to make a commitment to Him. So we cannot reduce faith to just head knowledge. On the other hand, let me say this. That's not to say that knowledge isn't necessary or isn't important because that's where it begins. The Reformers said that there was an aspect or an intellectual aspect of faith that they called notitia, which had to do with intellectual and intellectual knowledge or information. That, that's where, where it begins. It had to do with the, with the content of what we believe. With what we believe. Faith has substance or content. What do you hear today? It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere about it. Right? It's not true. It does matter what you believe. The Bible tells us that you must have the right content, even if it's basic and it's growing, right? Not perfect, not exhaustively, but there must be a basic, accurate understanding of certain truths. For instance, you must know basically that God is creator and that you are a, a, a creature and that he is holy and that he is just and that in the light of his holiness and his and who he is and his infinite majesty and 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 and, and his attributes you and I are sinners before a holy god that we are guilty and condemned that we fall short of the glory of god and we must understand something about Christ that Christ is the one god and uh, is god and man that he is the one mediator between god and men You must understand that He is the only Savior of the world, the only Lord, right? You must have basic knowledge of these things. But that's not enough. It's not Faith is not just mere head knowledge or intellectual knowledge of those basic things, but faith also is not heartless, cold indifference to those truths. Faith is not this heartless, cold indifference to the truths about God and, and man and Christ. And I'm sure you've shared the gospel with people who you, they, they know a lot of things about the Bible. They understand a lot of things. Maybe they even know more information than you do about the Bible. But there are, there's no affection there for the Lord. Right? There's no love for the Lord. There's no moving of, of, the, of the desires of their hearts to want to glorify God in light of what they know. And so the reformers talked about the second aspect of, of faith called assent or assenses, which meant that in response to the truth, there's this heartfelt agreement and joyful affirmation of what you know about God and, and man and Christ. That you respond to the truth with a sure confidence and deep-seated conviction that these things are, are true because, because God, your Creator, has said them. And you understand who you are in the light of your Creator. And you understand that there's only one Savior, Jesus Christ, who gives you hope. So there's this yielding of the heart to the truths that you know. 
You understand them from the heart. And our hearts are convinced that these things are true so that it moves beyond just, just intellectual information to hitting the heart affections and moving the will, right? You understand that, right? Entering a marriage or maybe with your kids if you're a parent, that it's, it's not just knowing information about them. It's about a relationship, right? A relationship. And the more you know somebody, the more you're moved to loving and caring for them, even their defects, right? It's about a relationship. Faith is certain, not because I put my trust in my faith or in the fact that I have faith or because I believe in, in myself, right? Faith is intimately connected and tied to someone, namely God, beloved. Namely God. So faith has to also do, not just with um, things on an intellectual level, but with my affections being moved to worship this one God who has revealed Himself to me. You know, I remember in my own personal experience, from the ages of 7 to 17, after I had come here from Mexico, I went to a Christian church, solid, heard solid Bible teaching in English and Spanish. I was involved in Awana, learned a lot of verses, even got awards for Awana. I became an Awana leader. I started leading in junior high ministry. I had all of these things that, that I can boast in and say, wow, I have a lot of, lot of knowledge. But you know what hadn't happened? Those truths up until the age of 17 did not move my heart to have a love for the Lord, to love Him, to cherish Him, to treasure Him. I was indifferent and cold, distant from God. There was no brokenness over my sin. There was no sense of the goodness of God and His love for me because of what I knew. There was no crying out for, for Jesus to save me. But I remember sometime in the age of 17, I don't remember the exact moment when God saved me. I know from his perspective, he knows the exact moment. But I just remember a period of time when those things that I knew and all those verses that I memorized began to hit home for me. And I began to agree and affirm with joy the things that I knew. And I began to be reminded of the things that I had learned about God and who he was. And of, in light of that, who I was. And I realized I'm a sinner. And as before, where I, I thought that I was a victim of my environment in Mexico and then in, in America, I thought people exploited me. The reason why I am the way that I am is because of my environment and all of that. So I rejected God. All of a sudden, I kept thinking about verse after verse after verse that talked about my own depravity, my own rebellion, my own mutiny, and my own tendency to blame other people for my sin. And I recognized that I was a sinner, that I was a sinner. And I began crying out to God, God, if you are real, and I know that you are, if you are real, reveal yourself to me. Otherwise, take me. I don't want to live anymore. I just began to wrestle with those things, and my affections began to be moved and to affirm and agree with the truth, the knowledge that I had. I'm sure you can identify with that to some extent or another. Everybody's experience is different, right? Everybody's experience is different. But you understand what I mean if you're saved. You go from this knowledge to really it hits home and there's this brokenness over your sin and remorse and you know that you need to be made right with God and you know that the only hope is Jesus Christ, right? The only hope is Jesus. See, it's possible to know a lot of truths, to be even be moved here and there and so sort of an emotionalism. I'm not talking about emotionalism when I'm talking about affections or desires, Right? I'm talking about a genuine brokenness over your sin in light of the holiness of God. 
In light of the fact that you've offended a holy God and you're driven to seek his help, right? That's what I'm talking about. You can have right knowledge, be kind of emotional here and there. Um, even um, that's why we have to be so careful with our evangelistic methods, right? Sometimes we can manipulate people emotionally to make a commitment, but we have to be very careful with that. You can have those things and yet not commit yourself to rest your life upon that which you know to be true, right? There was an insightful and sort of funny instance when a pastor wanted to illustrate the difference between um, saving faith and non-saving faith to a man in his church and pointing to a chair in his room, he said this to the man, you see that chair over there? And the man answered, yes. Do you believe that chair can bear the weight of your body, hold you up if you sit in it? The man answered, yes, I believe that. Well, do you believe that at this very moment, as we speak, that that chair is able to hold you up and support you? Well, of course it can, the man answered. And the pastor said, well, why isn't it? Annoyed, the man said, well, I'm not sitting on it. To which the pastor said, the pastor said, that's the difference between intellectual faith and true reliance. We can believe it can support us, but we don't really trust it until we sit in it and entrust ourselves and our lives to it. I like that. I like that. He made a good, good point. Some of us would do well tonight, beloved, to ask ourselves, has my knowledge of God and who I am according to the Word of God, a sinner in mutiny against the Holy Maker and who Jesus is, has all that knowledge moved me in such a way that I live relying upon God and His promises in Christ Jesus? Is it the conviction of my life? You know what convictions are? They are core beliefs, core truths that you cling to and you're willing to bet your life on, right? No matter what is going on, regardless of changing times, regardless of circumstances, personal cost, personal loss, even amidst difficulties and trials, convictions are those things you're willing to live your life according to regardless of what it costs you. Where there is genuine saving faith, there is full surrender and abandonment of self, right? Not perfection, not sinlessness, but progress toward less self-reliance and more God-dependence, right? A commitment to those truths, to live according to those truths. So faith is not those things. It's not just intellectual assent, It's not just emotionalism, but there is a moving, a quickening of the affections when they're saving faith, a brokenness over our sin. And faith is certain. It is certain because of the Lord. Well, what is saving faith? What is saving faith? I just want to answer that for us in the time that we have remaining, okay? And write these down. Because I think there is so much confusion in today's day and age, even, even in the church, even in our evangelism. We can oftentimes uh, share the gospel in a sort of an easy believism kind of a way. That if you just pray this prayer, everything will be fine. If you just walk the aisle, okay? If you, if, you, if you just have this experience. And in the process, we end up not without wanting to deceiving people into thinking that they're truly believers. So what is saving faith? First of all, it is repentant faith. It is repentant faith. The word for repentance refers to a change of mind concerning yourself, concerning God, a change of mind that leads to a change of of life. 
It refers to a turning away from your sin and a turning to God. Paul said concerning the Thessalonians that they turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9. Mark it where there is genuine saving faith. There is a change of outlook toward our sin and a new relationship to the world. Right? We often talk about uh, salvation as, as, as uh, um, getting my relationship right with God. Right? I, I, I was made right with God and my salvation. But how often do we think about salvation also as a new relationship to the world? To recognize that we are living in the world, but we're not called to be of the world. Right? We don't adopt the world's thinking. We don't walk according to the world. And there's also a new relationship to our sin. If you have saving faith, if you're a Christian, you are growing more and more in hatred toward your sin. You don't desire to be to sin because you know that sin offends your Heavenly Father. And sin hurts your Heavenly Father. And sin grieves the Holy Spirit. So saving faith is a repentant faith that recognizes it's not just about my relationship with the Lord, but also in light of that, there's a new relationship and a new reorientation to the world and to the way I see my sin. Listen to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. This I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. Gentiles there in the context are unbelievers, non-Christians. How do they walk? In the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And then Paul says in Ephesians 4.20, he says, But you, Christians, did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus. In other words, Christian, you now, having learned Christ, having been confronted with Christ, having had a collision with the living Christ, you know better. You know better. You've turned away from those things that you used to pursue. And now you've turned toward God. And by faith in Jesus, you live a life of obedience. Turning away from dead works and putting on Christ, right? We don't become perfect when we're saved, but we become new creatures with a new outlook on life, with new desires, right? And we're growing progressively to become more and more like Jesus in the power of the Spirit, We realize that we are no longer to live for ourselves, but for Him, for Jesus, the Jesus who not only only rescued us from the coming wrath of God, but freed us from slavery to sin, right? From slavery to sin. Let me tell you something. Let's not lower the bar on what being a Christian means, all right? Even in light of our culture. If someone is a Christian then they will and should be called to turn from their sin and obey Jesus. Amen? Saving faith is a repentant faith. It's a repentant faith, turning away from sin and to God in works of righteousness now, in the power of the Spirit. Be careful in your life or in the life of someone else with a person who professes to be a Christian and lives continually in unrepentant sin, and they still say that they're a believer. You know what the issue is in the case like that? Either they are deceived 
deluded, lying to themselves, right? And they could be in that state. Or God is not powerful enough to make them continually like Jesus. That's really the issue. Someone who professes to know the Lord says that they are followers of Jesus, and yet they live in ongoing unrepentance and never grow. Their desires are not to honor the Lord. Someone who lives in that current state, either they are deceived or God is not powerful to conform them to the image of His Son. That's the issue, beloved. Maybe you've had people in your life, friends or even family members like that. I, had a, I have a, 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 a relative who, when she was a lot younger, she made a profession of faith. Countless times, I remember her walking down the aisle at our church that we grew up at. Over and over again, and sometimes even in an emotional kind of way, making professions. But she lived a life of disobedience. Multiple children with various men, not her husband. Hateful as can be. One of the most self-centered people that I've ever known. And yet, whenever we would talk to her about that, and I would come to her and i say, you need to be really concerned about your lifestyle. I'd say, don't judge me. Don't judge me. Who are you to judge? Goody, goody, two-shoes. Right? Maybe you've had people like that. Maybe not that explicitly. What was the issue? I remember telling her, listen, it's either you are deceived, and all of these professions, they never really hit your heart so that you recognize your sin before a holy God. Or, God is not mighty to make you like Jesus. And I think it's the former, not the latter. You're deceived. That's the issue. Saving faith is a repentant faith, which leads to our second point here. It is a fruitful faith. Saving faith is a fruitful faith. Pastor Tim Carnes preached on Ephesians chapter 2 last week, and he did a wonderful job. And do you remember Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8? Two great truths here. One, we are not saved by our works, right? We're saved by grace alone. Amen? Chapter 2, verse 8 of Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Salvation is a gift of God's grace. Not based upon anything that we could do. Verse 9, not as a result of works, So that no one may boast. No one has grounds to boast before God because it's all a work of God to draw a person to himself by faith in Jesus Christ, right? It's not by works. But then notice verse 10. We are not saved on the basis of our good works. We're saved on the basis of Christ's finished work. But look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for or unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're not saved on the basis of our good works. It's Christ's finished work. He is the root. His work is the root of our justification, right? But the fruit of it, the fruit of it is good works that the Spirit of God produces in and through us as we yield our lives to the Spirit's leading, right? Listen, our Heavenly Father is happy that you are part of His family if you're a Christian. He's thrilled that He is your Heavenly Father. But He also wants you like any good father, infinitely more, He wants you to be fruitful, productive, and obedient. Amen? To bring glory to Him by your obedience. We're going to talk about that tomorrow. How do we bring glory to God? One of the ways that we bring glory to God is by our obedience. By walking in obedience to Him. 
Paul prays for that fruitfulness in the lives of the Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, he says that he prays for them that they would bear fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul prays for the fruitfulness of the Colossian believers. They would be rooted in Christ so that they would bear good fruit. John chapter 15, verse 16 Jesus said this, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. And he says in the different context there, and so prove to be my disciples, right? Bear good fruit. Another thing, it's, it's a repentant faith. It's a fruitful faith. It is faith in Christ. What is saving faith? It is, sa- it is faith in Christ. And if you walk away with anything that I said tonight, walk away with this. Our faith has an object, right? Who is that? Jesus. The risen, exalted Jesus. Don't ever think that your faith in itself saves you. Think about that. Don't ever think that your faith in and of itself saves you. Or that faith in your faith saves you. Or that faith, faith alone saves you apart from Jesus. It's faith alone in Christ alone, said the reformers, right? In Jesus Christ. Jesus is the object of our faith. In Acts chapter 16, verse 31, when the Philippian jailer asked Saul and Silas, what must I do to be saved after the earthquake that freed Paul and Silas? He's shaken and awestruck and he says, what must I do to be saved? Do you remember what Paul said in Acts 16, 31? You kids who've been in Awana, you know this verse, right? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household, right? You probably learned it in the King Jimmy or is it the ESV these days now? It's a different version now, right? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's believe in yourself, right? As our culture would tell us. Or believe in your faith. Have faith in your faith, whatever that means. It's believe in Jesus. Romans chapter 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, that He's Master, that He's Lord, and believe in your heart, that means sincere, with a heartfelt, broken kind of belief, right? That God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's faith in Jesus. It's faith in His atoning work. Say, what do do I need to believe about Jesus Himself? Well, some basic truths. I've already mentioned them before, that He is the God-man, that He is 100% God and He is 100% man. Not perfectly do you, and completely and exhaustively so that you're, you'll be able to the, explain and fully grasp what that means that Jesus is both God and man, but that there's a basic acknowledgement and affirmation of that truth. You must believe where, uh, that, that He lived a perfect life in your place, the life that you could never live. That while you fall short of the glory of God, Jesus fulfilled all of God's law on your behalf. That he was perfectly obedient, fulfilling the Father's will. You must believe that he suffered and died on the cross in your place. Personalize that. Not for the world, for you in your place, bearing upon himself your sins, even though he was blameless, right? We're the guilty ones. You must believe that he suffered and died on the cross in your place, bearing your sins upon himself, and that he alone satisfied God's wrath aimed in your direction for your sins. You must believe that He rose from the dead, that He conquered sin and death by virtue of His resurrection. 
You must believe that He ascended to the highest place of prominence, to the right hand of God, and that He's returning one day to judge the living and the dead. Not only must you believe, know these truths and call people to know these truths, but they need to affirm them and embrace them joyfully from the heart so that they're driven in response to commit their lives to Jesus. Amen? Amen? To follow Him, to love Him, to serve Him, to obey Him out of gratitude and love for what He has done for them. Beloved, it is Christ who saves I can't tell you how important that is. I talk to brothers right now who I I frankly don't even know anymore if they're even Christians themselves. Okay? I talk to people these days left and right with this nebulous faith and and it's about what they do and their their own and their own uh, working their their, uh, working out their salvation but with no reference to Jesus Christ whatsoever in His atoning work. Jesus alone saves Listen to what J.C. Ryle asks. Have you faith? It is a priceless blessing. Happy indeed are they who are willing and ready to trust Jesus. But take heed that you do not make a Christ of your faith. Rest not on your own faith, but on Christ. Is the work of the Spirit in your soul? Thank God for it. It is a work that shall never be overthrown. But oh, beware lest, unawares to yourself, you make a Christ of the work of the Spirit. Rest not on the work of the Spirit, but on Christ. Have you any inward feelings of of religion and experience of grace? Thank God for it. Thousands have no more religious feeling than a cat or a dog. But oh, beware lest you make a Christ of your feelings and sensations. They are poor, uncertain things, and sadly dependent on our bodies and outward circumstances. Rest not a grain of weight on your feelings. Rest and rely only on Christ. Learn, I entreat you, to look more and more at the great object of faith, Jesus Christ, and to keep your mind dwelling on Him. In so doing, you, will, you would find faith and all the other graces grow, though the growth at the, at the time might be imperceptible to yourself. He who would prove a skillful archer must look not at the arrow, but at the mark. End quote. Christ. Christ alone. Let me ask you tonight, For some of you who have not given your life to Christ, who are you trusting in for your salvation if you claim it? Who are you trusting in? Or if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, what do you think will save you? You think an emotional experience? You think maybe church attendance? You think maybe all of the knowledge that you have? Maybe your performance, maybe your works, maybe the fact that you give back to the Lord. Hey, I live, I try to live a really good life. Do you understand? At the end of the day, I'm a pretty, I'm an okay person. I give money to the church. In comparison to others, I am not so bad. After all, doesn't God grade us on a, on a, on a, on a scale, right? In comparison to others, I'm not so bad. Listen. Sola fide, faith alone in Christ alone, reminds us of the fact that there is nothing that we bring to the table. It is faith in Jesus Christ alone. His person and His work. Amen? Amen. His person and His work. For others of us who are saved, are you continuing to trust in Jesus? You know what sola fide, faith alone, reminds me of? That I need to continue to trust in my Jesus. So oftentimes we become so performance-driven, don't we? 
We live the Christian life as if God saved us by faith, but we are called to preserve our salvation by our works, and we become so, so performance-driven and so constantly insecure about our standing before God. Because we're trusting, beloved, in our performance. Do you understand that you can't improve upon Jesus' merits? Think about that. You can't improve upon Jesus' merits. Jesus' masterpiece. I liken it to going to Paris. Think about this. I go to Paris to go see the famous Mona Lisa, whatever that museum is where they have it. Uh, Mona Lisa, you, you know that, that painting, right? Some estimate that it's worth close to a billion pounds or half of a 500 million U.S. dollars. Or maybe that it's priceless. Imagine going and seeing the Mona Lisa. And when you're at the museum, you're looking at this thing. And you go up to the authorities in that museum in Paris. And you tell the authorities, hey, listen, I love the painting. There are many wonderful qualities. It's been preserved for 500 years. That's amazing that you've done that. But I want to tell you guys, I've made the trip all the way from America to Paris to look at this thing. And there's, I have some good ways to improve the wonderful picture. I want to improve it. Would you give me some permission to do that? I brought my paint. I brought my brushes, right? I have some skills, right? I had some art classes back in elementary school. There's a way that I can, I can uh, improve this baby. Let me add it. Oh, sir, wow. Wow. We're so thankful that, that you want to do this. Is that what they would say? We're so grateful that you, you want to improve the great Mona Lisa. I mean, you don't even know how many people come. If we could only improve upon this beautiful painting, and you're exactly the person that can do that. That is not what would happen, right? What would that guy say to me? Get out of here, you crazy nut. Right? You good-for-nothing, filthy animal, Kempis Hernandez. So get out of here. Pathetic dude, go back to your country. Go back to go back to Mexico where you originally came from, right? They wouldn't let you do that. You can't improve on the Mona Lisa. Can't get your hands on that painting. But this is how we act sometimes in a greater way with regards to the work of Christ, right? Maybe we would never affirm it and say it verbally, but that's how we live many times, beloved. We think that we, can, that we can somehow improve upon the merits of Jesus, what He has done. The Galatians thought that they could do that. They were thinking that, hey, we have Christ, but there's people that are telling us it's Christ plus circumcision, Christ plus this other thing, Christ plus certain works of the law. And Paul writes this to them in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. He says, are you so foolish, Galatians? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, having come to know Jesus, are you now to live by your own moral bootstraps, thinking that somehow you are kept by your own merits? By adding things to Jesus? You're fools. He says, I'm concerned. He says, I'm perplexed about you. I'm perplexed about you. I fear that I have labored over you in vain. You can't improve upon Jesus' masterpiece, beloved. We are saved only by Jesus' work alone, and we're kept by the same. Amen? Kept by the same. This great truth of sola fide reminds us of the fact that faith 
And Christ's merit alone is what saves us. And for others of you who are here who have not given your life to Jesus Christ, maybe you've come to the Lord in the past offering Him some of your works, offering Him some of your uh, perceived goodness, offering something that you can that you can uh, that you're, you're bringing before Him as if He is to you are to find favor before Him because of what you do, because of your humanitarian efforts, because of your knowledge or whatever, and you don't come to the Lord with empty hands. And I want to encourage you tonight: come to Christ with empty hands. That's what faith is, isn't it? Receiving God's gift in Jesus Christ with empty hands, not your works. Not your success, not your performance, not any inherent worth in you, but a heartfelt acknowledgement that only Jesus' death can pay for your sins. Some of you haven't done that. Some of you claim that you cried out to God and He has never saved you. Ask yourself, have you come to Him with empty hands? Nothing to the cross I bring, right? Only to the, nothing to the cross I bring, only to the cross I cling. Is that the way that it goes? Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. That's the idea, right? There's nothing that I do. Nothing. It's all by the work of Jesus Christ that I am saved. That's the great exchange. You're the worst of you placed upon Jesus, the best of Him placed upon you, clothed in His righteousness. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You so much, Lord, for the great truths of Your Word that are so, so important, not just in the past, in the history of our brethren and the things that they went through, but they are so pertinent for us today. In the midst of a culture where faith is so nebulous, Lord, so undefined, we are reminded by this great truth that is ultimately a biblical truth. You've revealed this to us, that there is nothing that we do to earn your favor or can do. It is only based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ that we are justified, that we are saved, that we are forgiven. Father, I pray that tonight, if there are people in here who, are, who have been moved by this, who recognize that, Lord, they've never come truly to you with empty hands, but they always come to you trying to somehow appease you to something that they do always come to, coming to you, appealing to you based upon their performance, trying to make themselves a better person so that they might, you might save them. I pray, Father, that they would come recognizing that they fall short of your glory, that it is only by faith in Christ as the object that they can be saved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.